Greetings, Rays community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Floyd Akins, who is the Vice President for University Advancement at the University of Toledo. Welcome, Floyd. Hey, thanks, uh, Brent. Uh, appreciate being here. No doubt. Uh, really looking forward to getting to know you better. Uh, and I have been asking our guests uh, a very similar starting question, which is I want to know more about your own higher education journey. Uh, and specifically in your case, I would love for you to take us back to junior year of high school. <laughs> that Floyd, where was he? What was he into? And what led him to Eastern Illinois University? Wow. Junior year of high school, you know, um, you are taking me back to the lunchroom where um, uh, three friends of mine, we, we were sitting around the lunchroom table talking about where we were going to go to school. And we were all, uh, we knew we were all state bound because at that time, none of us knew what we all know now in terms of uh, financial aid and scholarships and all those kinds of things. And uh, we zeroed in on Eastern Illinois and uh, a friend of mine, he and I went down there and the bottom line is everyone was very friendly. It was a small enough place, but it was big enough for us too. It was only an institution of 10,000 people. And uh, quite frankly, after walking around on campus, I, I felt at home there. And uh, it was there where um, I started uh, my, uh, my love for higher education, quite frankly. And, and were you, so you were growing up in Illinois. What part of the state were you growing up in? Yeah, grew up in the far south side of Chicago. And uh, in fact, my mom of 95 years still lives in a house that I grew up in on the south side of Chicago. Uh, I put myself, one of the things that will not show up anywhere about me is how I put myself through college, which was the fact that at that time, if you were a college student over the age of, I think, 21, you were able to drive for the Chicago Transit Authority. So I put myself through college driving uh, for the Chicago Transit Authority, the CTA. And I did that for two summers to help uh, uh, complete my college career and pay for college. Floyd, thank you for sharing that. Um, and I just have to ask, having been a longtime rider on the CTA, uh, <laughs> especially I lived in Chicago for four years out of college. Oh, really? Okay. You must have some stories. I mean, you don't spend two years, I mean... Two summers. Uh, yeah, I've got, yeah, I've got some. I've got. I've got stories for sure. I've got stories. I, I will tell you that people. It's probably very surprising that the bus that was uh, the easiest to drive is the is the one that some people will call the accordion bus, but it's called the articulated bus uh, because really it was like driving a trailer. You know, the the back end of that bus just followed you wherever you you uh turn and whereas the other bus if you might need to make a turn you had to pivot out to make the turn uh but yeah my route was out of the archer avenue garage and the longest route went from harlem avenue uh for those who know chicago uh, went from harlem avenue to arena uh towers and you turned around and came back up state street and went back to harlem so uh the number 62 bus uh, but it, uh, you know, we had uh, times where we would sit and uh, at the racetrack or sit at White Sox Park. But uh, that's how I uh, put myself through uh, my last couple of years of college. Did your mom go to college? No, my mom went to business school for a short period of time. You know, I come from a home of uh, 
of uh, two blue collar workers. My my dad worked. Uh, my dad was uh, a teamster guy, and he worked on the, on the dock. And uh, my mother was uh, uh, worked at Cook County Hospital, actually as a, a nursing assistant. She at that time, I think they call them now. She may be a practitioner now in today's terms, but. Uh, she worked in both uh, pediatrics and the children's ward. Uh, I mean, sorry, pediatrics and the burn unit at Cook County Hospital. And so that's my parents' life. And so we're just a very, grew up very, very modest uh, household. And so to grow up um, Southside Chicago uh, in that context, you know, Charleston, Illinois, I mean, is it love at first sight? What's the experience? Had you traveled or spent much time out of the city and what was it like kind of being the city kid down, uh, down, downstate? You know, I wouldn't say that Charleston was love at first sight, but it was different. You know, it was an opportunity to, you know, it was a, just a totally different environment. I had not here, you know, this was a kid who grew up on the far South, far South side of Chicago, all black community had never, uh, really experience what, uh, you know, the other uh, side was like, for the lack of better words. I didn't know any any other folks who uh, didn't look like me, quite frankly. And and the only, I tell you, to take that back, though, I, I would say that the first experience with that was driving for the bus, um, was driving the bus in Chicago. You get to experience all of these different cultures driving through Chicago. And since you said you live there, you understand. Now, Totally. Also, the thing about Chicago that that some people don't know, but a lot of people do, it's a very segregated city, and uh, which is unfortunate. But you you so you went in and out of these different neighborhoods. Um, I think the probably the the drive that um, woke me up was I was coming out of Archer Avenue and heading downtown, and it was about. 4 30 in the afternoon probably four o'clock in the afternoon by the time i got to halstead i had a full bus and i couldn't understand where these folks were going because it was 4 p.m they were speaking a different language uh polish lithuanian so as i get downtown uh, i'm on um, dearborn avenue and they're ringing the bell to to get off the bus they're all getting off and um, I'm trying to figure out where they're going. And it turns out they were the cleaning people. But my perception of those who were cleaning the buildings were people that looked like me. Uh, but uh, there are this, this entirely different group of folks um, that uh, were in the city cleaning. And um, at one point in time, you know, from a historical standpoint, for those who are interested, Chicago had the largest Polish community outside of Warsaw. I don't think that's the case now, but at one point in time, they did. So, uh, but it was just um, an awakening for me because I thought that the people that cleaned the buildings downtown were all uh, brown and black people. And that's, that wasn't the case. And so to go from sitting at the lunchroom with those buddies check out Eastern Illinois and commit yeah. and study communications. Correct. Um, when you think about building, um, you know, or, or establishing your focus academically, 
Um, it, you know, sounds like you, your parents weren't necessarily driving you in a specific direction or, you know, we well, they were driving. Well, they were driving me to get the degree, but not necessarily in a specific direction, as you would say. But and so how, yeah, how did you then shape? You know, do I study business? Do I go pre med? Do I go communications? What led you down that path? And what were some of your maybe favorite memories um, within that undergrad experience? Well, I had a familiar. I was very familiar with communication because my brother studied it at East, uh, University of Illinois, where he went to school uh, many moons before I had gone. He's 12 years older. So I had an attraction from that standpoint. But for me, the, the turning point for me was uh, I was literally minding my own business at a women's basketball game uh, at Eastern. And I was there by myself. My roommates had gone uh, away for the weekend. It was a, I never forget the day. It was a, it was a blizzard outside, but you know, the game didn't get canceled. So I'm sitting in the stands and this gentleman tapped me on the shoulder and asked me if I wanted something to drink. And, and I thought, man, I don't know who you are. Uh, but you know, I'm a starving, thirsty college student. So yes, I'll, I'll, I'll say yes to, to that. And it turned out he was the vice president of the university and his name was Glenn Williams. And we developed a very good relationship and um, it was that relationship in addition to two other important ones. One was my literature uh, professor who I actually to this day stay in contact with. In fact, um, before I took this position, I uh, called her and we had a conversation. We talk at least once a year. Her name is Jeannie Simpson. And uh, I credit her with, uh, I tell her she saved my life because that was she would make me come to the writing lab. And uh, if, if uh, she was not there, uh, she'd have a graduate student there helping me. And um, that having that experience from both her and Dr. Williams, and then another friend of mine who I stay in contact with, Booker Suggs, who worked in student activities, all of those individuals is, are the people that helped lead me to higher education. I knew, so when I graduated, I knew I wanted to be in higher ed. I just didn't know uh, what area I was gonna be in in higher education. But uh, those mentors and two of whom are still alive and I stay in contact with are the reasons why I do what I do. I mean, thank you for sharing without me asking because mentorship is such a recurring theme on this oh, yeah. podcast. And, it just yeah. feels like there are those very specific moments in almost every one of our guests' lives when that equivalent tapping on the shoulder occurs and you don't always know why it occurs. I mean, why? Why do you think he tapped you on the shoulder and struck up a conversation? And obviously you had to deliver on, you know, your end of the bargain because it's a two-way street, but but what's I mean, and, and frankly, if he hadn't tapped you on the shoulder, sounds like we might not be talking today. Uh, I, I don't know if I'd go that far, but I, I would say that it was the start. It was the start of something, uh, a very unique relationship uh, from from my standpoint. Um, and, you know, it wasn't about, you know, you had this odor and you were talking about the differences of growing up in Chicago and going to Charleston. And here you have this gray hair, um, you know, white male tap you on the shoulder that you don't know. And um, you've never met him before, and he offers to to buy you uh, a Pepsi 
Pepsi is going to love this, this uh, podcast. Uh, and, and, um, and you develop a relationship from it, right? That leads you to learning about what he um, uh, experienced as an administrator and it, it gets you involved in student activities and student government. And it, it leads you to, in fact, he was the one, I'm walking across the stage to get my diploma and I get it from the president first. And then he shook my hand second and whispered in my ear. He said, I just talked to the people at Grinnell. I think you got the job. And it was my first job out of college, which was an admission officer at Grinnell College. Amazing. And that's when I knew when he had whispered to me uh, in my ear as I'm graduating, walking across the stage that uh, he had received the reference call uh, about my candidacy to be uh, an assistant director of admission at Grinnell College. And that was my first job out of, out of uh, Eastern Illinois. Well, I don't know how many Pepsi executives listen to the Rays podcast, but <laughs> you've got a blizzard, the gymnasium. A kid sitting alone, mentorship, yeah. and you know, life-changing career opportunities. If that right. is the script for a for a tear-jerking commercial, I don't know what is. But uh, no, thank you for, great. for sharing. And I will just uh, I will share that as we record this, I am three hours northeast of Grinnell, Iowa. Um, oh, really? I, I grew up in northeast Iowa, uh, just okay. outside of Decorah. Oh, and, sure. While my wife and I live in the Northeast uh, now, we spend time back here. My folks are uh, here and extended family. And so I've recorded a variety of these podcasts over the last couple of years from here in McGregor, Iowa. So take us down uh, uh, to the south, uh, Southwest to Grinnell and just um, actually very curious to get your perspective on the um, experience in admissions, uh, which there aren't that many of our guests who started in admissions. You know, more often it was, uh, I became a student caller, one thing led to another, or somehow, mm -hmm. you know, somebody introduced me to the alumni department and I started there. But we have had a couple of folks who have um, worked in the admissions space. What led you to apply at Grinnell? Um, <laughs> and what was the experience moving from Charleston to Grinnell? Take me back to the first three months of that job what stands out? Um, I'm going to plug a lot of eateries, I think, but as part of this story, but I'll, I'll tell you something about um, Grinnell, a friend of mine, uh, who we're very close. In fact, he was my best man. And um, he worked at Grinnell at the time. Um, and he was an RA. So he had gotten his graduate, got his master's degree from Eastern. We both worked in student activities together. So he went to Grinnell as an RA. So as I was approaching graduation, he called me to tell me about the position and admission. They said they're looking for somebody, someone to recruit African-American students to Grinnell. Would I be interested? And I said, Stephen, there's no way I'm going to go to Grinnell uh, and be in Iowa, but I'll apply for the position and, and it'll give us an opportunity to hang out. So um, I applied and sure enough, they, they uh, interviewed me. So I, I drove to, to Grinnell, Iowa and uh, quite frankly, fell in love with the place. It is just an amazing institution. And, um, you know, I spent, um, uh, once I got to campus, I realized that this is where I needed to be. 
Uh, this is where I needed to start my career. And that's how it happened for me. I mean, it, it was it was a friend who was there who had encouraged me to apply for the position. And uh, so I started my career off in, in, in admission for Grinnell and, and did that for three years. And so when you think about the process to then accomplish the job, and this is late 80s, I think, to set context for people right. just from a you know time, technology, context. Right. How do you go and recruit African-American students to Grinnell? Like, well, what do you start with? What, what are you equipped with? And what is the, the right. process to go and do that? Right. Well, uh, the, the one, one of the things about Grinnell was to be able to tell the story. Uh, it, was a, it was a school that was founded by an abolitionist uh, to begin with. And then you, you look at some of its alumni uh, who passed through the doors uh, of the of the institution, like a uh, Herbie Hancock, for example, like a uh, Ron Galt, who was a uh, um, senior VP at uh, uh, J.P. Morgan, and uh, Jim Laurie, who started the Minority Business Report in Chicago, and um, the list goes on and on about uh, you know a lot of its uh, its alumni who passed through those doors, and then you um, you you. Then you understand the story about the fact that it was the history of the institution is the fact that it's the first school college west of the Mississippi to graduate at African-American. And that was shortly uh, after slavery and uh, when that when that occurred. And so that history was uh, part of my uh, reasoning for, for wanting to be at a place like that. So you start with that, and then you you look at uh, schools uh, throughout the country, uh, high schools. You go to areas like a Washington D.C. or Chicago or Philadelphia uh, to recruit students um, to to Grinnell. Now it already had somewhat of a pipeline uh, that was established. There was one pipeline. It was a program called Champs uh, Chicago Health and medical program, I think is what it was called. And ironically, there's a kid who I recruited from the Champs High School program out of Chicago. He he went to Lindblom High School in Chicago. He is now my mother's dentist. So that kind of tells you uh, that, uh, you know, the impact of a place like that. So you're recruiting kids from, from all over the country. And uh, you're telling them the story and you get them on campus. And then there was that commitment that the institution had toward them uh, as well. I would tell you that most of my, what I would call dearest and best friends are either students or people that I worked with at Grinnell uh, who uh, are part of my life to this day. And along the way you decided to pursue your own uh additional higher education correct over at the university of iowa so what led you to make that decision and did you basically work and balance the the master's so uh able to take the time quit, quit cold turkey um and in fact uh, my my spouse she decided when she decided to go to law school um, I decided to go to graduate school. So we uh, we uh, left, uh, packed up, 
uh, went one hour east and uh, moved to Iowa City. And uh, she went to law school and I enrolled in a mass communication journalism program at the University of Iowa. And again, I never had the intention of, uh, of being a journalist. It was really exploring. And in fact, before I left Iowa, I had, you know, after I got my degree, I had contemplated doing a PhD in higher education, uh, but then um, had the opportunity to get into advancement. But there, there are some things that occurred even before all of that. First of all, Grinnell helped support me through, through uh, graduate school with, um, with the promise that I needed to come back to Grinnell to work there. So I did, and I worked in, in public relations uh, and realized that, no, public relations is not for me. That's not what I want to do. And then I took a job at uh, the University of Iowa working in a program called Opportunity at Iowa. And uh, today that would be called diversity, equity, and inclusion, because that's exactly what the program uh, was about. And I did that for four and a half years at the University of Iowa. So more on the student affairs side, working with uh, both uh, admission and financial aid on recruiting students of color to the University of Iowa, uh, recruiting and graduating those students. So I did that for four and a half years. And I was literally uh, minding my own business uh, this was the summer of 95. I was minding my own business. I was in Santa Fe, New Mexico at a conference, a national conference on race and ethnicity. And I ran into um, uh, one of my late mentors now, Frank Thomas, and, a, and another group of folks who worked at Grinnell, who approached me and said, hey, um, we're getting ready to start a campaign. And you know a lot about the, the uh, Grinnell. Would you be interested in coming back? And I said for the third time <laughs> and um, what they didn't know is I was really interested in, in fundraising. And so two weeks after uh, that encounter in Santa Fe, I interviewed for the job, uh, my first advancement job at, at back at Grinnell and they hired me. And uh, that's where I started my career in advancement. There's a recurring theme of you minding your own business and <laughs> Yeah, it is. I, I, you know, this. I stay out of trouble. You got to do that. And, uh, and you, and you do, and you kind of look, and you just never know what, what uh, you may run into. So you start in this advancement role at Grinnell right. with a deep understanding of Grinnell, right? You've right. been selling the mission of Grinnell by way of your enrollment work right. at Opportunity Iowa. You get more exposure to the intersection of enrollment, student affairs, financial aid, which gives you a window into where the money comes from, right? Which which in a lot of cases is going to be by way of philanthropy, but it was still new to you. And so um, when you think about your first 90 days in that advancement work, where now there's a number, uh, you know, there's hard dollars that you're, right. you're focused on, was that a big change, a difficult change, a seamless transition because you had such a strong foundation? I mean, what are some of those early experiences of, of not going out and asking somebody to commit to attend the institution, but actually asking for support? Well, I'll be frank with you. I think the the biggest change was when I walked through the door and people saw, saw me. 
um, because that was during a time that there was no LinkedIn, uh, there was no social media where you could look up a person, right? So I would call and schedule an appointment and they didn't know. You can see the surprised look on, on folks' face when I walked through the door uh, representing uh, Grinnell College. And yet the other surprise to them was when I asked them for money <laughs> to, to help support the institution because that's, that was my job. That was what I was supposed to do. And again, the, the yeah, I mean, yeah, you say that with a smile, but I mean, that sounds hard. I mean, was that, did it uh, yeah, you? I mean, you know, I, mean, it, it, I won't say that it was hard. It's, it's life, right. You know, it's, um, you know, it's, it's something that that's expected when you, when you are, um, you know, in a position in the kind of position that I was in, um, now today's world, it's a lot different. You can look up people and you can see what they look like. You can see where they've been. But, um, you know, I think when, when you get past all of that, people will respect you when they know that you're representing their alma mater in the right way. And you're trying to engage them in the life of the institution at that. And then, you know, what you look like after that doesn't matter, but there were a few surprise faces. There's no doubt about that. And, um, to be honest with you, that gave me satisfaction more so than anything, um, because um, I knew that uh, I could do this work and I was proud to be able to do it. I was working at a very uh, wonderful institution and I was not going to be apologetic about asking for, for gifts to help support the institution. Similar to, to where I am now, and I know we're not, not here where I am in terms of our conversation, but you know when you work for wherever you work and you're in these roles, you, you can't be apologetic. You've got to believe in the, in the institution. And so when you think about um, some of those favorite experiences in the advancement work at Grinnell, uh, any specific gifts or donor connections or uh, unexpected outcomes that- well, that Again, um, some of my closest relationships, uh, there's a couple of trustees who I'm very close with. Um, there's one who uh, became a mentor of mine uh, that I'm very close with. And then another mentor of mine who passed away uh, just a few years ago. One just, well, one passed away last year. Another passed away three years ago. Very, very close to me. Um, uh, two African-American uh, wonderful men who uh, helped guide me in my career and in my life and um, a guy named Barry Huff and another Frank Thomas uh, who were, were very close to me but there are so many other people uh, that I that I can name who I'm close to at that institution um, and I stay in contact with those folks and one of my one of my best friends graduated from there so um, it's it was again the um, the beginning uh, for me in terms of my advancement career is, is learning how to establish relationships, knowing how to establish genuine relationships with folks and uh, still being able to talk with them about their philanthropy at the same time. And so that, that played a, a major role. Uh, but let me, let me take a step back to, there were, imagine, and you may or may not know some of these names, but maybe some of the folks on your podcast will, but my after my first two months of being at Grinnell in advancement, I, I went to a conference and it was in Newton, Massachusetts. And the faculty 
at that conference. The, the, the conference was put on by the Institute of Charitable Giving, which was founded by Jerry Panis, the late Jerry Panis, and, and also Bill Sturdivant. So they were on the faculty. Sharon, um, um, I mean, Karen Osborne was on the faculty. Dave Dunlap was on the faculty. And to have those folks at two months, here I am, two months in advancement, and those were my faculty members, I thought I just, you know, knew everything after that about advancement, that no one could tell me anything about it. Now, obviously, that wasn't true, but that was my foundation, as having that experience, having those professionals, uh, all of whom had written books, and a Dave Dunlap, who was um, uh, credited with creating Moves Management, that was my faculty two months after I started at Grinnell College in advancement. And so that was the foundation that helped set me up uh, to uh, uh, where I am now, quite frankly. And help me then understand what led you back down Interstate 80. I mean, not there aren't too many people who spend as much time on that part of Interstate 80 as you. Uh, no, you had the run at Grinnell and, no. then, and then back to Iowa. Uh, and by the way, and by the way, when I when I worked in advancement for Grinnell, I still lived in Iowa City. So I commuted back and forth. It was a one hour commute. You know, that stretch of the road pretty well. Uh, so uh, I did that for four and a half years before uh, taking the position at the University of Iowa uh, at the um, at the University of Iowa Foundation. And so uh, it's it's the year 2000 and an opportunity emerges at Iowa. Right. And, and you, you dug in there for a decade. Um, you know, tell us about that um, that experience. And I'll acknowledge that I was probably on a football visit with Coach Ferentz in his first year, you know, just oh, wow. kind of yeah. getting set up there. So exactly. That is where. University of Iowa was where I really learned how to do this work. Uh, it's where I became, you know, for the lack of better words, uh, a leader. Um, because, you know, if you don't know the organization, it's a very well-run organization. And a lot of um, uh, institutions aspire to be uh, as well-run as that one. Um, and, and, you know, every organization has its, you know, it has its drawbacks, but in terms of being able to learn every aspect of what it is that we do and the work that we do in advancement, that is, that's where I learned it. It's, it's how to engage with donors, how to, um, strategize and, and think about, um, bringing donors closer to the institution, um, how to sit around and, and talk about uh, the highest level of donors in the principal gift space, how to work with a dean or a unit director. Um, all of those things for me uh, occurred at the University of Iowa. And I was very fortunate to work with uh, uh, a great dean at uh, the Tippy College of Business, who he and I, at, when we first got together, we bumped heads, but again, He's become a, a, again, he's another mentor of mine now to this day. And because uh, I learned from him and uh, I like to think that he learned from me as well. But 
if you, as you are moving in, in the advancement world, you got to understand, you got to know how to work with unit directors, unit, I mean, and deans and provosts and presidents and, and uh, understand how um, to engage with them and how they like to be engaged uh, with their uh, constituencies. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about how to build relationships with donors. We, I am sure, do not spend enough time talking about how do you build relationships with key partners like deans. And uh, I've talked to enough of your peers over the years to know that uh, the vision, the message, the impact, yeah. all of that is uh, secondary in many cases to is there a strong relationship between the fundraiser and the dean. And if you can get that relationship right, the sky's the limit. But if you get it wrong, it almost doesn't matter what some of those other um, pillars of, of the work are. And so I'm just curious, knowing what you know now, if you could go back in time or you know, thinking about butting heads and then being able to turn that around, which is frankly pretty rare, uh, any lessons learned that you'd want to share with uh, with I, I think I think it's about listening. It's about listening to one another. Um, he had uh, an approach that, um, you know, worked for him, and I had one that worked for me. And we had to figure out how we're going to work with each other. I think it's again, it's about sitting down and being able, being able to discuss what the expectations are, what his expectations are of me, and then learning uh, that I was fortunate because not everyone has the the kind of dean that says yes, I want to travel. I want to get out. I want to meet with donors. And, and he and I, uh, we were able to do that on a, on a consistent basis. Not It was not inconsistent at all. It was planned out, um, targeted, and we, you know, spending time with each other and learning about each other uh, and how, how we approach uh, working with our uh, donors. Um, that's what you have to do. And it's sometime you you get it, you get it wrong. And the other thing is, um, one of the other things I've learned from him is, and, and I use this in my leadership now, is a lot of times we were afraid to take risk. And uh, he was one of those individuals. He's like, let's try something different. If it doesn't work, we'll try something else. But, you know, I think so often people are afraid to fail. And that is something that uh, even with, uh, the team here is to at the University of Toledo is to try to encourage them to try things, try some different things, different approaches. If it doesn't work, don't worry about it. We try something else. But if you if you put together a good strategy and approach to it, it actually may indeed work, and it's something that others can can use and the whole organization can benefit from. So that is, um, you know, every step of the way I learn something. Up till this point, your entire life had been basically Iowa, Illinois, with a fair amount of travel, I'm sure, as you right. uh, took on those roles and conferences and admissions, recruitment and fundraising and all of that. Um, but you had the opportunity to uh, take a step up leadership wise, join The Ohio State University. Uh, was that a tough decision? Yeah, it was. It yeah. was a tough. It was a tough decision, tough move because you know there are family considerations. Had at the time the kids were young. Um, the only thing that I will say about the move, uh, I think that move to 
up until today or up until now, I think the move to Ohio benefited more uh, my family, my kids and, and my spouse than it did me in terms of professional sense. But I think, and like I said, up until now, because the position that I am in today at the University of Toledo was something that I looked at several years ago and the timing just wasn't right. And um, I uh, finally landed here and the timing is, is definitely right uh, for me to be here at the, uh, this is the right time, the right place uh, to be, to uh, help manage and lead and, and partner with, with folks here to move um, our uh, advancement apparatus forward here uh, at uh, University of Toledo, uh, but but the move to Col the move to Columbus was was difficult. I said no several times. They kept recruiting me, and and I eventually said yes, and uh, we we moved to Columbus, and um, so that's that's how we ended up in. And we've been in Ohio now for twelve years. Highlight of the time at Ohio State, and then I want to make sure we can carve out plenty of time to cover uh, the experience. Of I would say that, uh, you know, not everyone has the uh, experience of, um, you know, having misses, and that was a miss, and uh, for a variety of different reasons, and, and so it's, you learn from it, <laughs> you know, as I say, you can, you can learn from every uh, decision that you make that you can make both uh, personally and professionally. And, you know, I learned um, professionally from that one. I appreciate you sharing. You know, I think there's certainly a tendency uh, sometimes to represent everything as a success. And so, oh, uh, no. you know, don't need to push deeper, but, but I appreciate your willingness to kind of show a little vulnerability there. Well, you know, uh, let's just say this bigger is not always better. So let's talk about the opportunity at uh, at Toledo. Um, what what inspired you to take the role? Uh, what did you, what were you excited about when you started learning about the institution? And yeah, then um, Toledo. What I was excited about when I took this role back in February is what I was excited about several years ago. Except for there's there's a big important difference, and that's the leadership. Uh, the leadership uh, was was different than it is now. The president and I, I uh, Dr. Uh, Rick Postal, he and I have a very good uh, partnership, right? And and when you take these kind of positions, you have to have a good partnership with your your president or your leader. You have to have that. But you you look at that, but then you also look at the tremendous amount of potential here. Um, school that has for our size, you know, about 15,000 students or so. And we have the depth and breadth of, uh, of an institution that you're not gonna find. Uh, it's very hard to find in the country. I think there are only about 16 other institutions that are similar uh, to, to UT, where you have, um, you've got pharmacology, you have law, you have a business school, you have a nursing school, uh, you have a medical college, uh, you have engineering, and then you also have a medical center, a wonderful honors program, and your arts and letters. So you've got all of this in this um, school that is not as large, again, as a, one of your Big Ten institutions. 
but yet we we have it here and when i so when the attraction for me was the depth and breadth and the fact that there's so many incredible opportunities uh, that are taking place here that we need to really expand on. And we're in that process right now. The university is going through a strategic planning process. One of the, and I will say a strategic planning process that will actually be used. Uh, the, the, the institution is also entering into a sesquicentennial celebration uh, coming this fall. And, and uh, our hopes is after coming out of that, we will uh, enter into a campaign uh, to help uh, move the university forward. And um, how would you describe kind of the, the the opportunities as it relates to advancement today? You know, what is the maturity level when you think about the giving pyramid? You know, is it about just laser focus and telling that 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 story um, at the top, broad based work? I mean, what's the state of affairs today? Well, I think we're still kind of flushing, flushing some of those ideas out and, you know, I don't want to give them all away, but we're flushing those out. And um, I think once it's all said and done, you're going to see um, some incredible initiatives that our donors are going to be able to gravitate to. And it's going to be up to us. I think um, we're a very humble institution and I think uh, it's time for us to stop being humble and to start talking about uh, some of the uh, great things that are taking place here. And, I, you, and you'll see that uh, in the coming months and years uh, as things are progressing here at the university. You um, stay busy outside of work. You stay busy at work and busy outside of work. And so there are two, two other themes that I want to cover, areas oh. of interest I want to cover <laughs> first. You got to tell me about the funk daddies, and and I and I'm I wish I had queued up uh, one of the tracks or one of the videos that I found out there. So we'll see if we oh, can splice that in. But oh, you're kidding, daddies. Yeah, you know I um that actually goes back again to to my youth, and and I'll tell you because I got to tell you how how I got to that point. Uh, I grew up singing in a in a very uh, large church choir and um, did did anthems and spirituals and gospel music and and we traveled and uh, made albums. Yes, I said albums, cut albums, and um, it was a wonderful experience for me. And I so the so music is 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 a passion of mine. Um, singing is a, a passion of mine. I'm actually taking voice lessons right now, in fact. And so when I, I'm in Iowa City and, and um, you know, I really had not done any singing at all, um, but I've always had a passion for not just music, but also uh, R&B and funk and uh, got this opportunity uh, to uh uh, form a band and be one of the founding members of a band called Funk Daddies, as you mentioned. And uh, I think Funk Daddies will be celebrating 20 years next year, I think, or something like that. Or is it 15? No, 15 years. Well, in any case, um, that's how I really got into it. And um, it, was a, it was a wonderful experience, a good time uh, to uh, seeing some of the um, the tunes that I used to listen to growing up, uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire tunes, Commodores, uh, uh, Tower Power, and and Stevie Wonder, and music like that. So, what is your favorite 
Funk Daddy's performance. When you think about like the, oh, the best, performance, you no, know, the rush, the crowd. I mean, what stands out? Well, well, for me, it was probably opening for the Beach Boys. Amazing, mic drop. Yeah, it was probably opening for the Beach Boys for me. Now the other guys in the band, they had they had done this before. You know, I hadn't had that experience of uh, opening for. Uh, a well-known band, but uh, they had, but for me, that would have been probably the pinnacle uh, was to have that opportunity uh, to perform in, in front of, uh, I don't know how many people, maybe 10,000 folks or something. Uh, but it's a good time. I'm going to go tell my dad that I'm interviewing a guy who opened for the beach. No, just tell him I was a part of a group. Uh, don't tell him it was just me. Uh, but they're still performing. I hope to. I hope to get back to Iowa City sometime and and join them. It'll be it'll be a lot of fun. It would be a lot of fun to do it. Love it. Thank you for sharing. On, no, you're, you're on right. a more serious note, as it relates to um, uh, you know, your side hustles. Uh, I know that you have played a huge role uh, in establishing the Black Leaders in Philanthropy Group, and as I've learned a little bit more about it. I was so pleased oh, yeah. to see familiar um, names and faces in the group, uh, but it just looks like an amazing group. And, you know, in particular, I think we'd be remiss to not just talk a little bit about the equity pledge, the Black Leaders in Philanthropy equity pledge. Um, just give me the background, the why behind this. Yeah. And I'd love to just quickly tick through some of the points um, as it relates to the pledge. Well, I, th I think I'll just, uh, for me, again, it, it's all historical. Um, I remember walking into a case conference shortly after I got into advancement work. And, and um, Brent, I walked into the room and I didn't see anybody look like me in there. And I thought, okay, either I'm going to have to be, either I'm going to complain about this or I'm going to have to be part of the solution. And it was during that time that I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to connect with someone at Case who, um, you know, asked if I would be willing to speak at a conference. And I'm thinking, well, I wouldn't have been doing this for a minute, but, but sure. And that's how I started really uh, cutting my teeth, uh, so forth, in terms of leadership and, and advancement and and um, because I decided that it was important, it was just as important for people who didn't look like me to see me as it was for people who did look like me to see me. And what black, uh, you know, uh, blacks and philanthropy, what we're really trying to do is I would like to see more people uh, in leadership roles. Um, uh, more and because there are a lot of very experienced folks out there doing this work and they don't get the opportunity uh, you know for whatever reason they don't get the opportunity but the more people who have the experience uh, who are folks of color who get the opportunity the more people who are trained and um, then that is going to open up doors for those individuals it'll be difficult for organizations to say no uh, you don't have this, you don't have that, but that is what we're working toward. And that is why we set aside the time uh, to mentor and to help uh, guide folks through their careers, because some of us uh, did not have um, 
you know, uh, that opportunity to, to help people, um, to help them with their career and guide them through their career and, and through some of those uh, um, hills and valleys that we, we all go through. And so I want to see, you know, <laughs> one day I want somebody to take my place, right? Uh, I want to see people grow and have the opportunity to be frank with you a lot sooner than I had the opportunity or thought about having the opportunity to be a leader in the field, because that's the other thing. And, 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 the, and, and here's something else that's very important. Not everyone needs to be a vice president. Not everyone needs to be an associate vice president. Um, but what I what we're trying to do is open the doors for individuals to let them know that this is a really wonderful, uh, fulfilling career. And whether they decide to stay at the director level or whether they decide to be a vice president, that's not what matters. What matters is, is the fact that they can have an impact. And, and the more uh, you know, folks that are drawn to this field, the better, because we have become a very diverse society. And you know, let's face it, we are. And, and it's good to have um, diversity at all levels you know, and that is something that we're really, really pushing toward. Well, thank you for sharing. And, and I'll just encourage anybody listening, go to blacksandphilanthropy.com, look at the pledge. And what I would like to just say to you and to your teammates who, who established this is thank you. Because I think sometimes for uh, people who look like me, you uh, can get so overwhelmed by the magnitude of the issues out there. Right. And you can feel like, there is nothing I can do as a drop in this ocean, or where do I start, or what can I do to make progress, right? That I look back and say, I was on the right side of history, or I was, I was, you know, doing what I could in, in the context I was operating in to make a positive impact. And what I love about the pledge is there are just some really clear recommendations, some guidelines that everybody can learn from, react to. You know, do we have a search committee that reflects diversity by including two or more members of historically underrepresented groups? Right, right. Are we focused on non-traditional recruitment venues? Do we have two or more members of a historically underrepresented group in the pool of candidates for senior director, executive director, AVP, et cetera, positions? These are... It's not the only way to think about it, but this is a clear framework that any of us can audit the work that we are doing. And it doesn't mean that um, every position is going to go to a person from a historically underrepresented group. Correct. It does mean that we can ensure, right, that we are going above and beyond to just ensure progress and yeah. ensure a more level playing field um, and to check the implicit or explicit bias that everybody deals with by way of referencing the pledge. And so I think it's beautifully written. It's really clear. I'm sure it was not easy to boil it down to 11 points. And then I'm sure whether it was two or three or four or what the numbers were must have been some debate. Right. But you got there, you put it out there. And I'd love to know um, where you see that going and if you've received any feedback similar to what I just shared. Well, it's really interesting because uh, just this week alone, um, so we'll, 
part of what we do is we mentor, um, you know, some of those uh, younger folks who are in the field. And I have a call tomorrow uh, with uh, one of them. So we take the time uh, to do that, to discuss, you know, we may get a, a, a call to say, hey, Floyd, uh, there's a position that I'm interested in um, at this place. You know, there's a good chance that I may know someone there or have been there. There, there, and 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 we all know those. There are institutions that will say someone to tell someone, "No, nah, I don't think you want to work there. That's not a place you want to go." And here's why. But here's a place that that would be welcoming to you because it's not about just um, you know advancing in in your career. It's about being able to advance in your in your career where you're going to be successful. Um, and, and making sure that people are put in positions where they can be successful. And there are a number of us now who have had the experience of either working at various institutions or know of someone who, who've worked at an institution where we can make a phone call and say, hey, let me let me call so-and-so on your behalf and let me let me see what's going on there and 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 um, to get that feedback because everyone, let me, let me rephrase that. There are a lot of institutions who want to recruit people of color and members of the LGBTQ community and as part of their organizations. But what's more important is being able to recruit them so they can be also successful in those organizations. And not all of these organizations who want to do the recruitment are equipped to allow that person to be successful and to advance. That is what we need to get to. Uh, so it's not just a recruitment piece. It's almost like if you look at it, let's do the rewind and look at it from the admission standpoint, right? It's not just about recruiting, it's about graduating. And so you have to be able to, to get from point A to point B. So yeah, I recruited this person, but you know, then you, you say, you, know, you make an excuse of why they're not successful. But maybe you should look in the mirror and think about what you could have done to help make that person successful. Um, so that's, that's the that's the other the, part of this. Well, that's where the the E and the I, you know, and the B right. and the J right. come in. And, and I think the elevation of a more holistic approach um, to move beyond just the D, just the diversity. Correct. Exploring that full full stack support and. And I feel like that's one of the, um, I don't know, silver linings and the challenges of the 2020s that I hope that in 10 years, we look back and say, man, those were some tough times, but we we changed the vocabulary, we changed the understanding, we changed the uh, level of empathy around the equity and the inclusion aspects of driving. Um, Correct better organizations. No, you're absolutely right. And, and everything that you said um, prior to my interjection is, is I, I can only say amen to it because uh, I think you really, really nailed it. You hit all of the points and you hit all of the points that that uh, we have been focusing attention on in, in, in the group. So I appreciate you uh, recognizing that. Absolutely. Thank you for the work. And we're at time. Uh, and, and man, this flew by. I just want to say thank you, but I also want to give you an opportunity. One, uh, are you hiring? If folks want to be in touch with you, either directly uh, by right. way of UT work or 
via Blacks and Philanthropy or 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 the Funk Daddies for that matter. Uh, <laughs> we are we are hiring. You know, we've we've got a position. We're looking for a director of events, and we're also looking for a senior director of corporate and foundation engagement. Uh, so uh, if there are some folks that are out there that uh, may be interested in one of those positions, uh, let me know. Uh, and and I'm sure that somewhere down the road, we're going to be looking at some other opportunities uh, as well. But uh, I want to thank you for the opportunity. Also, uh, I have not done anything uh, this in depth um, I, that I can really recall in quite some time, because uh, I'm not one for going around talking about myself. But uh, I, I appreciate you digging and uh, you found out about the Funk Daddies and uh, all those kinds of things. So uh, everybody should Google the Funk Daddies. There's plenty of videos out there. We're going to yeah. figure out how to get some of the music in. But look, I mean, part of the reason we did this, Floyd, is because you and your peers in the advancement space spend so much time asking donors their stories, yep, their experiences, their mentors, their formative inflection points when people tapped them on their shoulders, which led to their career paths. And I don't think we've done enough time as a sector, certainly as a, as a vendor partner of, of hearing your stories and, and the, the stories of your peers and, you know, thinking of you at that lunch table, in that gymnasium, in the blizzard, driving that bus, I hope that lots of people listening, I hope someday somebody comes in and says, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I know I'm applying for this role and I want you to know that I've listened to the Funk Daddies and I really appreciated your perspective on, you know, growing up in Chicago and, and, and right. here's my, my take on it. That is all we're hoping for with this is just a chance to elevate um, your voice and the voice of your, your peers uh, who spend so much time hearing other people's stories and not enough time getting to tell your own. So thank you for coming on. on and thank you for, thank you for that. And if I could say one last thing, I think, you know, the reason why I continue to do this work is, is because this work helps to save and change lives. Um, that's why I've been doing this work and it's, uh, it's just so rewarding. And uh, now I'm at an institution where I feel uh, that, uh, you know, we're about to take off and no pun to our, our rocket uh, name, but uh, we are. And, and to have the opportunity to be here and, and work with uh, incredible leadership is a blessing for me uh, at this stage in my, in my career. So I appreciate the opportunity, appreciate talking with you and uh, any, anyone and everyone out there who wants to, uh, to chat and get in touch. I'm more than happy to spend time. Yeah, look, I, uh, I'll say I read a sentence when I was prepping for this that stuck with me. You, you said at one point when you took the gig at U Toledo that when you graduated from college, you didn't think we'd still have students who are first gen. We yeah. still yeah. to do as a first gen yeah. student myself. I say thank you to you and to your, your peers. Um, there's a lot of work left to do. And uh, the impact, you know, oftentimes, right, is shared by way of thousands of donors and billions of dollars, but it's the individual lives uh, that are impacted, uh, compounded, that do drive uh, change in our in our society on a variety of fronts. And so thank you uh, for sharing your journey. I encourage everybody uh, to look up Floyd, look up Blacks and Philanthropy, look up U Toledo, uh, and here's to the rockets flying. Thank you, Floyd. Uh, and with that, Brent um, is going to be signing off here 
with, um, with our guest, Floyd Akins, who is the Vice President for University Advancement at the University of Toledo. Thank you, Floyd. Thanks, Brett. Appreciate right. it. Take care. Take care.